Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. As I said, we are now in the Advent season, and so we are doing an Advent series. And each week, we're going to highlight the, the theme. And I understand that Advent candles seem to represent different themes based on different traditions and so on and so forth. But we're going with the, the, the most famous or the most used one, which is um, hope peace, joy, and love. Might not be doing it in the order that it was supposed to be done in, but it, it makes sense based on, I, I think, the chronology of the birth story of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be doing it as hope, peace, joy, and love. Um, or are we doing hope, joy, peace, and love? I don't know. You'll find out next week. So. <laughs> but we're doing hope today. That much I know. We're doing hope. And um, Christmas has an extraordinarily interesting history. I was very interested in, in learning the history of Christmas, and so I picked up a history book uh, written by an Anglican priest, I think he is. He might be a bishop. I don't know. Um, but he went out and he researched uh, Christmas down throughout the ages, and it's called um, Christmas in the Crosshairs. I can't remember his name, um, but what he does is he demonstrates how Christmas has been attacked from every single possible direction you can imagine from both outside of the church and within the church. And it's so interesting. He has got one, he's got one chapter where he's comparing the, um, the, the Protestant pastors and ministers who attack Christmas um, at the same time as the, the socialists and the fascists were attacking Christmas in the 1900s. And it's so interesting to compare the two of them, right? Um, but it, needless to say, there, it is rich and ripe with history. Um, so what we, what we do know about the earliest church in, in the history of, uh, of Christianity is, is that when it came to the birth of Jesus Christ, um, they were convinced that he was born in either late December or um, June. I know that's widely variant, right? That's a big difference between June and December, but almost every single church father, they had a debate on when Jesus was born. It was either in December or it was in June. So I ended up finding out this really interesting theory, which apparently comes from this documentary called The Star of Bethlehem. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but uh, I intend to watch it. I found out about it the other night. And this theory in The Star of Bethlehem, so this astronomist or whatever, talks about the convergence of Jupiter and something else. And, um, but the theory would be that Jesus was born in June, and then the wise men were visiting in December. And so that's maybe where the the, the disagreement about the dates, and yet for some reason there's such this solid belief about the dating of Jesus. It's either in June or it's December, according to the early church fathers. But even though the, 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 the groundwork for Christmas celebration was laid in the early centuries of the church, no one really actually celebrated the birth of Jesus as anything special for the first few hundred years of the church. And the reason for that is because the early church thought that only pompous and arrogant tyrants celebrated their birthdays. That was a belief. So whenever uh, the Caesar of Rome had his birthday or whenever a local governor had their birthday, they would throw this massive celebration that the entire city was forced to observe. You know, you had to have a festivus, right? Festivus for the rest of us. That was the point of uh, the, the Caesars and the leaders in the Roman Empire. And so the church looked at that and said, we're not doing this with Jesus because our Savior, our King, 
he, he made himself born into a, a lowly and humble servant. And so we're not going to emulate what the Roman pagan emperors and so on and so forth are doing. Um, well, that all changed, of course, when the Roman Empire assumed Christianity into its culture and into its political scene. And um, so here's a summary of what happened for the next 1600 years. It was a mess. <laughs> the next 1600 years, Christmas is just a mess of things. And you can imagine why, right? So the birth of Jesus, which ended up, they said, was in December, December 25th, right? They picked a date and they chose it and they stuck with it. They said December 25th, that's when we're going to celebrate. It also happened to converge with a bunch of other winter solstice feast days and feast days for um, pagan deities and Roman deities. And then as the gospel was spreading, they had feast days in Celtic lands and feast days in Germanic lands and feast days in the Slavic lands. And so what ended up happening, of course, this always takes place, is that the celebration of Jesus ended up becoming interwoven with other pagan practices. And some of them were what we might consider sanctified or made holy. They were, they were taken and they, you know, they, they lost their idolatrous nature to them. There was no sacrifices to idols and stuff like that. And others were idolatrous. And it kind of all seeped in together. And out of this massive confusion of creative chaos, we ended up getting this rewards and punishment policy that came with the Christmas season. Because that's what Christmas is really all about, rewards and punishment, right? If you're good, you get a gift. If you're bad, you get some coal, right? That's kind of the mentality. Like, where did that come from? It's kind of like the whole Easter Bunny thing. We won't deal with the Easter Bunny right now, but, right? Like, what happened? Like, where did this come from? That has nothing to do with Jesus. Think about that. Did Jesus come because he said, I'm coming to the good? Right? The good, uh, the good I come to, the bad I drop coal in there. I don't, you know? Like, that's, that has nothing to do with Jesus. But somehow, out of this mess came this belief of rewards and punishments. And the reason for it, ready? There were mythical creatures that were assigned to the winter pagan festivals. So for instance, we had Perkta the Disemboweler. Sounds fun, right? Perkta the Disemboweler, what, what the threat was is if you were a bad child, then Perkta the Disemboweler would come during the winter solstice and rip open the belly of disobedient children. There was... There was, Pierre, there was Pierre Foutard from France. Pierre Foutard was also known as Father Whipper, the French Whipper, self-explanatory, right? There was Krampus. You might have heard of Krampus. Krampus was the Austrian demon child stealer. Um, and then my favorite was Gryla, the cannibal giant of Iceland. So, so all of these mythical fi uh, figures were part and parcel with the, I can't say the, it wasn't the Christmas season, but with the, the winter festival season, right? So in the winter festival season, there was a belief in these rewards and punishments that came to children, mostly punishments, if they were disobedient all year. And you can see how it makes sense that it's at the end of the year, so you're trying to tell your kids, be good, or perk to the disemboweler is going to come visit you at night. <laughs> so... Throughout the centuries, people became a little bit kinder, a little bit softer, a little bit gentler, and so we got the, these myths got rolled up into the modern-day jolly-bellied old fellow named as Santa Claus. He was a much kinder soul in comparison. If you were well-behaved, then you'd find some sugary treats waiting for you. 
If you were a bad apple, then you would find a beating rod for your parents to use throughout the next year. So Santa still, you know, he was, he was still a stern figure in his heyday, right? But hey, that's better than uh, Gryla the cannibal giant coming to knock on your door, okay? Um, so there was a, a poem in the New York Spectator in 1810, um, and it put the sentiments of the season well. So it said, Oh, holy St. Nicholas, all the long year, our books we will love and our parents revere. From naughty behavior we'll always refrain in hopes that you'll come and reward us again. The crux of the season for these children was the closing line of that poem. Did you hear that? In hopes that you'll come and reward us again. The crux of the season became hope. That was what stood at the center of Christmas. Before Christmas, it was hope that Gryla wouldn't come and eat you. It was hope that you wouldn't be whipped by Pierre Futard. It was hope that Santa wouldn't leave a beating rod for your parents to use the next year. It was hope that you would wake up one morning to a cornucopia of delicious delights. And that hope remains true to this day during the Christmas season, right? I mean, all around the world right now, children are writing letters to Santa Claus or Father Christmas or Kris Kringle, right? They're writing these letters and they're hoping that they've behaved well enough throughout the year so that they can receive gifts, right? So they can receive a Lightsaber Academy interactive battling system lightsaber, right? It's one of the number one toys on the radar for kids today. And I got to be honest, it sounds kind of awesome. I sort of want one myself. Um, <laughs> But it's not just children who are hoping during this time of year. Workers are hoping that both they and the company that they work for have done well this year so that they can receive that end of year bonus, right? There's a lot of people that hope and look forward to that at the end of the year. That, that bonus will go a long way for us, right? And especially this year because there's five weeks in December and if you get a bonus on top of that, it sounds really great, right? So people are hoping for that kind of gift. Students are hoping that they've studied well enough and they'll perform well enough on their end of semester exams and papers. The unemployed fathers and mothers are hoping that the job market will open up in a healthy way this year. Party hosts are anxiously hoping that the embroiling family conflicts won't boil over into the Christmas Eve or Christmas Day supper or whenever they have a family get together. They're sitting there and going, oh, please, Uncle Larry, be careful. Just, you know, keep your mouth shut, please. Let's not do this. Not politics, not politics, not politics. And they're hoping against hope there because they know that's futile. (laughs) And then I personally, I'm hoping that J.J. Abrams hasn't totally wrecked the Skywalker anthology with this final movie in the Skywalker series. But then again, that's hoping against hope as well. So, but still, hope is alive and well during the Christmas season. It always has been, even before it was Christmas, and it has been since it became Christmas, and it still is today. Hope stands at the center of Christmas. But the question that we have, are toys and dinners and jobs and movies, etc., are they the greatest things that we can hope for on Christmas? Or should, we be, should the hopeful longings of our souls find their fulfillment in something or someone far greater? My postulation, my exhortation for us is that Christmas is about hope because hope finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Christmas is ultimately about hope because hope finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. See, what we're doing when we're hoping is when we're hoping for something, what we're doing is we're longing for satisfaction. 
And we know sometimes that it's temporary, right? Here's an example of temporary hope seeking satisfaction. When that vacation is coming up, that time away from work, or maybe that, that trip, whether it's to a, to, a, to a lake house or to the beach, or maybe you're going on an exotic vacation somewhere, right? But what you're doing is, as those days are building up, you're, you're hoping that it's going to be a refreshing time. You're hoping that it's going to be a fun experience. You're, you're hoping that it will be enjoyable or learning or something like that. You're hoping to receive something out of that vacation, even though you know it's temporary. It's a temporary reprieve from work, but you're investing hope into it because your longing for rest is to be fulfilled in that vacation. So that's an example of temporary hope. Sometimes we have a long-term expectation of hope. Like, for instance, I know of some people, when I went into basic training, when they joined the military, they had this hope, they had this desire that they were going to do 30, 35, 40 years in the military. Like, that's what they wanted to do right from the outset. They were going to do that much time in the military. They were going to retire from the military. They were going to attain a high rank, like a general or command sergeant major or something like that. And their entire career would be satisfied. Their career longings would be satisfied by achieving their hope and their dreams of serving for 30 or 40 years. Right? So there's that long-term aspect of hope. But whether short or long-term, the truth is all hope on this earth is limited. And the reason that all hope is limited is because, simply put, life has an expiration point. We all move towards it. I know we all don't like to think about it, but the truth is, realizing that we have an expiration point on our lives helps to put everything else in perspective. But now, when I say that Christmas is about hope and hope finds its fulfillment in Jesus, see, I'm talking about something that is different than limited short-term, this-life-only hope. I'm talking about permanent and everlasting hope. I'm talking about a hope that can find its fulfillment in something that is not just temporary, not just short-term, not just for a career only or vacation only, but is infinite. The type of hope we find in Jesus is infinite everlasting, never-ending. We read about that in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Let me read that for us. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month um, with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This passage is an announcement, a heralding of hope. Gabriel is the divine messenger. He's only one of two named angels in the Bible. The other one is Michael. 
Uh, his name literally means a strong champion of God. Uh, it's got this picture of vigorous masculinity or lion-like strength. So we can imagine why Mary was struck with fear in verse 29 when this masculine champion of God comes down to her. Like, this wasn't, I know sometimes in the movies, like Gabriel comes down, and he's sitting there with a little halo over his head, and he's like this slender figure playing a harp. Mary! Right? <laughs> it's not the way it was. Like, I'm talking about, like, when this angel came down, he was, like, he was broad-shouldered. He was strong. He was mighty. I mean, we think about Michael as the warrior angel. Gabriel is a warrior angel too. Like, when he came down, this was intimidating. If he came in here right now, we would all as well fall on our face in fear. Like, don't hurt me, please. Right? So this message of hope, I want to just convey that. Like, it comes from a place of strength. It comes from a place of power. Like, when God gives His messages, why is there always fire and thunder? In you know, hurricane clouds. It's because God is a powerful, mighty, awesome God. How dare we weaken Him with the type of pictures that we have sometimes. It's just, that's a little pet peeve of mine. It doesn't really have that much to do with this message, but just, I, I don't know, I had to get it off my chest. Anyways, the same messenger that came to Mary also announced the miraculous birth six months earlier. We read about that when we lit our Advent candle. That was the message of John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, being born, right? So he's got a strong calling to, to, to announce these miraculous birthings that God is going to bring about. And it says in the text in verse 26 that he was sent to the city of Galilee, a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now this is an amazing fact. This is extraordinarily interesting because let me ask you a question. If you sent a messenger with a powerful message, with this strong presence and it was a message of ultimate significance, where would you send them? Where would you send them? Send them to the White House. Thank you. You'd probably send them to a major city, right? To a major news outlet. A place where there's going to get maximum coverage. New York, L.A., Beijing, Paris, D.C. In the ancient world, you're looking really only at Rome. And if the message needed to be announced in Israel, then you're looking at Jerusalem. Those are really kind of the only two places that makes sense for a message of this importance to be sent to. But this messenger of hope, Gabriel, is sent to this tiny city. It's still tiny today. It still only has a population of 77,000 people today. Back then, it was probably only maybe 1,200 or 1,500 people. It's a backwater city. And not only that, its main population aren't even Jews. Its main population is full of Gentile people, non-Jewish persons. Why is this messenger with this incredible message of hope sent to Nazareth of all places? To Galilee? Why? I think the answer is twofold. Number one is that even though this message of hope is directed towards the Jewish people, ultimately it finds its fulfillment towards all people throughout the whole world. And so the fact that there's many Gentiles there is this wonderful picture of God's message of the Savior going out to the ends of the earth. But I think the second reason is the most important one. Galilee is chosen as the place where the message is received because, simply put, God is keeping His promises. Because God is keeping His promises. He promised that hope would first return to the region of Galilee before it went anywhere else in Israel. So, for instance, when we go back to 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29, read this little, little detail, but it's so powerful. It says, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel... 
Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, Abel-Meth-Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazer, Gilead, and, listen to this, Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people away uh, to captivity in Assyria. So, Galilee is one of the very first places that is captured by the Assyrian Empire, and it's never returned to the people of Israel. So there's times in Israel's history where land is captured, right? We think during the days of Samson, or we think during the days of Judges, where land was captured by invading armies or invading tribes, but then God raised up a deliverer then to rescue that land. And then the land was cleared of the oppressors, and it was lived in again by the people of Israel. That's not what happened in Galilee. In Galilee, when the Assyrian Empire under King Tiglath-Pileser, and we have external evidence and external testimony as well, even though the scriptures are more than sufficient for us, but the historical records demonstrate this is exactly what he did. When he invaded Israel, he invaded from the north, invaded Galilee and these regions, and he took them over, took the people captive, deported them, and guess what? Never, ever, 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 ever to be returned to the people of Israel again. The land after Tiglath-Pileser took it and the Assyrians took it was under perpetual bondage and slavery to a tyrant for the rest of its history. That's amazing to just think about. So what's happening there? Ultimately, God is pouring out his judgment upon Israel beginning in Galilee, right? Because the only way that territory can be captured by the people of Israel is if God removes his hand of protection from them. Because God's the one who says, I'm blessing you with this land. I'm gifting it to you. And as long as you keep my commands, I'm going to put a hedge of protection around you. And I don't care if somehow a futuristic army comes down with their laser guns. You're protected. And the only way you're going to be conquered is if you disobey my commands, then I will remove my hands of protection from you and you will be invaded. God warned them about that time and time and time and time and time again. They continued to go back to their idols. They continued to reject the prophets. They continued to reject the covenant of God. And eventually, in the 700s, about 750 B.C., I think it was 779, God removes His hand of protection once and for all, and the first place that is captured is Galilee. The first, one of the first cities that's captured is Nazareth. And so it's the place where God's judgment came to. But then we turn to Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verse 1. And we read this prophecy, and it's beautiful. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt, the he there is God. God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali. That's his judgment. But in the later time, listen to this, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And how is it that God makes that way glorious? Verse 2 begins with this joyful prophecy. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So God begins to remove His blessings towards Israel in the land of Galilee. Then He promises through Isaiah, that when his blessing returns, the first place that we'll see it is Galilee. And now, the angel of Gabriel is saying, that time has come, Mary. 
Because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you conceive the eternal Son of God, that's the fulfillment of the prophecy. In the first place that receives the fulfillment of God's promises is that little tiny town of Nazareth. And that little tiny region of Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's amazing to think of. So this hope of Christ that we're talking about, that hope finds its fulfillment in Christ, the hope of Christ that He's the light of the world and the light of Christ drives out darkness and oppression. The region that's been sitting in bondage and chains for 750 years is the first place to receive the incarnate Son of God. But there's another of God's promises here in this text that needs fulfilling as well. See, we read this in verse 27. We read, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. What I want to focus on there is Joseph, this man who is of the house of David. So Mary was betrothed to him. Betrothal was typically a year-long process. Mary was probably about 12 or 15 years old when she was first betrothed to Joseph, uh, probably on the younger side. I mean, in a day when men and women died very young, it was vital to marry as early as one could, as early as you could start having children. Joseph was probably about 19, 20 years old. We know that he was a carpenter, or at least a worker with his hands. That made him a pretty skilled laborer in those days. But it's not his identity as a carpenter. It's not his age. It's not Mary's age that's supposed to stand out to us here. It's this little detail at the end of verse 27 that Joseph was of the house of David. Joseph was of the house of David. If we turn back to Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 16, we'll see at the end of it that Joseph is in fact directly descended from King David. His, but the, there's a problem here. And the problem is that David's throne has been usurped. In fact, King Herod, the one who's sitting upon the throne in Jerusalem right now, isn't even a Jewish person. He's not even an Israelite. He's an Edomite. That's what he is. And the Edomites were kind of an ancient enemy of the people of Israel. But now, in this pronouncement, this hopeful pronouncement that Gabriel's giving, that Christ is entering the world, what God is promising here is that He is remedying this terrible situation. God is remedying this issue where a usurper is sitting upon the throne. And now, this king is going to come from the line of David through Joseph, and he will sit on that throne. So uh, let's look at verses 32 and 33 again here. In verse 32, it says, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So he will be enthroned. He will reign. There will be no end to his kingdom. All of these hopeful and kingly aspects of hope are being fulfilled in Christ because promise. Because God promised it to David long, long ago. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, we, we read this. This is, what, this is what God promised to David. He said, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, there is an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy is through Solomon, but there's an ultimate longing looking at this prophecy, and that's fulfilled right here in Jesus. But now, if you have this intuitive thought in your mind, you'll say, wait a second. How can this come through Joseph? Jesus wasn't born through Joseph, right? That'd be a very good question. There's two answers to this. Number one, 
In Luke chapter 4, we read of another genealogy of Jesus. And it's actually quite clear from the original language. It doesn't translate very well for us. But it's quite clear that Luke is mapping Jesus' genealogy through Mary. And Mary does go back to David as well. So on that hand, Jesus is descended from David biologically. But there's also something else in in the fact that Jesus doesn't need to be descended from Joseph in order to receive the inheritance rights from Joseph. Now, the reason for this is adoption, while it was pretty rare in those days, adoption carried with it the legal binding obligation that if someone adopted a child, that child received the full inheritance rights. It didn't matter if a child was born after. That child that was adopted receives the full inheritance rights that the father has. And so when Joseph takes Mary and takes Jesus and adopts Jesus as his legal heir, he is saying that the throne of David, which is supposed to be my possession, is passed on to you, Jesus. And so Jesus has that right and claim both through the bloodline of Mary and through the inheritance rights given through Joseph. Okay, but there's one more question left to be answered, right? Where is this throne? Where is this throne? That's a good question. Because the promise here is that Jesus will reign on the throne forever, that there will be no end. But look, Jesus never ascended to a throne on earth, did he? Jesus never went into Jerusalem and said, Harry, get out of my seat. I'm sitting down there, buddy. Right? He didn't do that. In fact, Jesus was, on all intents and purposes on this earth, seemingly conquered by Herod and by Caesar. Right? And not only that, but the promise is that he's going to sit on that throne forever. Well, there isn't even a throne in Jerusalem today. There isn't even a kingdom of Jerusalem today. There's no Davidic line at all today. Right? So how is this promise fulfilled? How is this hope fulfilled? It's actually, the answer to that is in verse 32. In verse 32, we read this. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And then in verse 35, he will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, that's the thing is Jesus isn't just merely a son of David. He also has the identity as being the Son of God. That's what makes him unique. See, he's not just another son of Solomon. He's just not someone else that's in the, in the bloodline of David. He has that identity, but he also has something unique that none of them ever had. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, is that, yes, a man came to bring salvation to this world, but he was a unique man who was unlike any of us, who was unlike anyone who's ever existed because within that single person of Jesus Christ, he had the fullness of humanity where he, had, uh, uh, where he inherited the rights of the Davidic throne, but he also has the fullness of God and divinity where he inherits the rights of the heavenly throne as well. This is further confirmed um, in Luke chapter 3, verse 22. When Jesus is baptized, this is the voice He hears. He says, You are My beloved Son. This is coming from heaven. 
with you I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verses 34 through 35, it says, A cloud came and overshadowed Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. It overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus himself affirms this identity in John chapter 14, verse 9. He says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And then again in John chapter 10, verse 30, where he is sharing with his opponents at that point. His opponents are accusing Jesus of being a false Messiah. And Jesus says, I and my Father, talking about the heavenly, eternal Father, we are one. And that's the literal rendering and translation. I and my Father, and then there's actually a pronoun there, we are one. See, Jesus is far more than merely a son of David. He is also the eternal Son of God who has come into human flesh. And here's something that's awesome too. This was promised as well. You see, we saw God promise that hope would come to Galilee. We saw God promise that hope would be returned to the throne of David. But there's also hope that He Himself would come in the flesh. We go back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And we read this. It says, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, and it is virgin, not just young woman there, whatever else you might hear in documentaries this season, or from people at a party, if someone says, never mind, I'm not going to get into that. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is another prophecy that has a dual fulfillment aspect. On the one hand, Isaiah is saying this prophecy to King Ahaz, and there's an immediate fulfillment with one of his sons, right? But this clearly looks forward to something that's even greater than that. And then that's confirmed when you look at Isaiah 9 through 11, which is talking about this future Messiah going back to Isaiah chapter 7. So there's an immediate fulfillment aspect, but then there's this future fulfillment aspect. And in this future fulfillment aspect, God is saying through Isaiah to the nation of Israel, to King Ahaz, that there's going to be a time when this miraculous birth will take place. And that miraculous birth will lead to Emmanuel, God with us. Look back at me at verse 27 here. It says that Gabriel was sent to who? A virgin. Light bulbs spring off in our heads if we know Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, right? Gabriel was sent to a virgin. And that's what leads to Mary's confusion in verse 34. And she says, how will this be? Because she wasn't dumb. She, she knew how babies were made. She knew that as the angel Gabriel is saying that you're going to conceive, she's thinking, she's calculating in her head, saying, I'm not supposed to be married to Joseph for seven, eight more months at least. And I, just, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Gabriel. Right? That's a logical response. So the angel Gabriel then describes to her what's going to happen. Starting in verse 35. He says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, therefore, because of that, because of this miraculous nature of the birth, this child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There's an overshadowing of the Spirit that brings about the birth of Jesus Christ. Now what does this make us think of? To me, it makes me think of Genesis chapter 1, right? 
In Genesis chapter 1, we see the Spirit hovering over the face of the deep. And what takes place when the Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep? Creation. And what happens after creation? The fall. Corruption, death, suffering, pain, judgment. But now, what's being promised here is that the full triune God, do you notice the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? The Spirit and the Son are right there explicitly said, and where it says the Most High will overshadow, Most High is another term that's used for the Father. Talking about the the, the Father God, right? So we see Father, Son, and Spirit all here in verse 35 acting in the creation of this unique person, Jesus Christ. Just like all three of them acted in the unique episode of creation out of nothing. What's being said here is that when God comes upon the Virgin Mary through His Holy Spirit, He is creating a newness of life. He is creating something renewed. Something different. Something unique. That is going to what is going to restore the original creation that was fallen into corruption. So what we're seeing here, because we've looked at now the two natures of Jesus, right? We saw that He's descended from man as a descendant of of David. We also see that He is a unique being in the fact that He is the eternal Son of God. And both of those unique entities converge on this one person of Jesus Christ. So because of that, we see that Jesus is uniquely qualified as this new creation, no one else like him, to sit upon both the throne of David and upon the throne of heaven. He's the only person who is qualified to be able to do both of those things. Ever think of it that way? No one else is qualified to sit upon both thrones. Only Jesus himself. So therefore, in Jesus, the two thrones the throne of David and the throne of heaven become one. So when we say that Jesus reigns upon the throne of David, we're not talking about just an earthly throne anymore. Whereas one point in time, it was just an earthly throne because Jesus is unique. He's able to turn the earthly into heavenly and therefore He takes both flesh and and heaven and spirit, and He converges them into one unique creation. And so when we say that Jesus reigns upon the throne of heaven right now, He has taken that up with Him. Or I should say the throne of David. He's taken that up with Him into heaven. And so when we see Jesus sitting upon His heavenly throne, like in the book of Revelation, where we talk about Him being enthroned in the book of Ephesians when we're going through that, yes, we're talking about His ascent into heaven, but He's also sitting upon that throne of David, which is promised right here at the same time. He reigns over heaven and He reigns over earth. And then at one point in the future, this is what we hope for, is that that throne is going to descend back upon the earth. All things will be restored in Him. Again, hope finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So here's my question for us. Where is your hope this Christmas? Seriously, where does your hope find fulfillment this Christmas? What is the greatest source of satisfaction for your hope? Is it in flimsy, rustable toys or items that are going to wear out at some point? Is it in green dyed paper that will ultimately erode because of oxygen exposure over time? Is it in anything in this life that simply and directly point 
uh, directly put, is going to come to an end? Is that where our ultimate hope is? Or is it in the eternal throne of both God and man, sat upon by none other than Jesus Himself? Where is your hope? A couple aspects of hope for us to finish off today. Number one, hope that is placed in Jesus will drive away the darkness of sin and oppression. I love the picture of light coming into Galilee, this place that is sat in deep darkness. And so when Isaiah is prophesying that in Isaiah chapter 9, it's amazing to think of. It had just fallen, okay? So when Isaiah is prophesying, the north had literally just fallen. So there might even be hope still at that point in time that it would be reconquered by the people of Israel, right? And yet Isaiah is saying that this place that sat in deep darkness, So if Isaiah is saying that, what's that mean? It means that he's seeing down to the future that it's not going to be recaptured by Israel. And so this place of Galilee, can you imagine being under oppression for 750 years? Can you imagine being under slavery and bondage for 750 years? Like, I I can't even conceive of that. That's an unbelievable amount of time. It's a millennium almost. Wow. And yet this place of deepest darkness is the first place to receive the light of Christ. Now in a very real sense, that's what happens in our souls when we receive the hope of Jesus too. When we receive the hope of Jesus in our lives, our souls are at their darkest points right before that. Because our souls have built up a lifetime of sin and despair. And we can feel it. There's a weightiness to it. In our souls, there's pain and there's grief and there's loss, there's emptiness, there's despair. But there's also guilt and shame because we know of the lies and the lusts and the greed and the anger and the hatred and the bitterness that have all come out of us. We know about it. We know about the things that we've done, the things that we've said, but we know even more so about the things that we've thought of. We know about the things that we've felt. We know about the, 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 the promises that we've broken. We know about the lies that we've made. We know about the people that we've hurt intentionally or unintentionally. And we know most importantly about the beautiful God that we have offended the loving Holy One who at every single moment upholds the breath that comes into and out of our lungs. Amazing to think of, but without God giving that to us, your lungs shut down and you die. We know that every single tiny cell in our body is being upheld by the glorious hand of God. And if He were to, at one moment, put a tiny dose of poison into that cell, or corrupt it and twist it just a little bit, we die. We know that every single aspect of our lives is held in His hands, and yet, as, the, as Paul puts it in Romans, we do not give thanks to Him. And so we have a lifetime of sin against our fellow mankind, and most importantly, sin against God that weighs down our souls in deep darkness and oppression. But then Jesus shines as a blindingly brilliant light into the darkness of our soul. And He does so all out of grace. Again, this isn't going back to Perk to the Disemboweler. Where we have to worry about our good and bad behavior. Oh boy, is Jesus going to come? Is He going to disembowel me or is He going to give me candy? It's not who Jesus is. 
Jesus comes down and says, in my grace and love and my mercy, I look upon all of your sins and I say, forgiven. If all you'll do is just trust in me. Place your hope in me. Place your faith in me. That's it. That's the light that shines into the darkness of our souls. Like Galilee so long ago, 2,000 years ago, receiving the light of Christ. Let your souls receive the light of Christ and hope this season. Secondly, hope that is placed in Jesus is hope that is built upon the promises of God. I hope you, I hope you saw that. And, and I know that I went through a lot of passages. So I, I'll recommend, you know, if you, if you want to listen to this message again, because there was a lot that I had to, to kind of like burn through quickly. But what I was trying to do was to build this case that you see that this birth doesn't happen out of nothing. Like this birth doesn't just all of a sudden like arrive on the scene. And then we're like, whoa, where, where did that come from? God has been laying the groundwork for this miraculous birth of Jesus Christ down throughout the centuries. And all we have to do is, is look at this. <laughs> all we have to do is like read the Old Testament. Isn't that awesome that He gave us that to be able to do it with? To be able to like literally lay out the roadmap leading to Jesus? And all that while, as we're, we're looking at those incredible promises, right? The promise to Galilee. The promise about the virgin conceiving and giving birth. The promise that this child would be unique, the Son of God. God with us, Emmanuel. The promise that He would be the Messiah born to David's lineage. Like, all of that happening. And then how about this? The promise, we didn't cover it today, but the promise that this Messiah, unique, Son of David, would then have to be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter, uh, 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 oh shoot, Micah something five. Four, five? Five, four? Four, five. I don't know. And Micah, Micah prophesied. Before, they didn't used to have chapters and verses, so that's cool, that's fine. <laughs> but in Micah, he prophesies that the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. But wait a minute, God! He's conceived in Galilee! That's not an easy travel, that's not an easy trek from Galilee to Bethlehem. They wouldn't do that on their own, most likely unless there's this nationwide census that they have to obey. Huh. Like all of these things that have to come into place because they're fulfilling the prophecies of God fit together in the most perfect mosaic we could ever imagine. And that's just about the birth of Jesus. Never mind the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Right? And then the birth of the church and the spread of the gospel. Let's like, just start looking at all the parts. It just gets geeky on me. I love it. But what's happening here? What I'm trying to say is that like, our hope isn't built off of nothing. Our hope is built off of the promises of God that have been fulfilled in the Word of God. So like, this isn't blind faith. This isn't just a leap in the dark. This isn't just, uh, yeah, just believe it because I'm saying it's true, right? This is believe it because look at the testimony that God has given us. In fact, I actually had a friend, and this is what he said to me. He goes, I can't believe it. I said, why not? He said, because it's too perfect. Yeah, he said it's too perfect. He goes, it seems like men just made it up because there's no way that it could be that perfect unless they just, they, you know, they rigged it to make the story up. I said, that's an interesting take. But let me just you know, lay this one out there for you. What do men write that's ever perfect? Think about that for a second. What stories, narratives, movies, and books do men write that are, that's ever perfect? I'm talking about it as like a narrative story. So for instance, right? I've been watching the old Star Wars movies. 
Yes, the, the, original, the original trilogy. Oh, not the original trilogy, the, 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 the prequels. I know, they're terrible. But one of the reasons they're terrible is because it's riddled with plot holes. So in the first movie, the way that the entire galaxy gets shaken up is because of some obscure 14-year-old queen who just like shows up at the Galactic Senate and she's like, I don't like the Chancellor. And then they go, yeah, let's get rid of the great Chancellor of the Republic. Let's just get rid of him and then put in the Emperor. Like, that's the, that's the plot. Some 14-year-old queen child in, in, from an obscure planet. And as you're sitting back, you're like, that's, that's ridiculous. That's silly. It's just this massive plot hole that goes unexplained. And then when you look at every single story ever written by man, every single movie, every book, whatever, it just has all plot holes in it and incomplete points and things that are mentioned at the beginning of the story that just kind of like fade off in the end and never get a satisfactory fulfillment. Not so with the Word of God. When we turn to the Word of God, it is perfect. It is complete. And so it's a demonstration that this is not something just written by man. This is something that is given by the Holy Spirit, that is directed by God's Spirit down throughout the ages. And so when we place our hope in Jesus, it is hope that is built on sure foundations in the promises of God. Third, hope that is placed in Jesus is celebrated in community. Just quickly put, because we're going to get to this in another week. Just notice at the end here that Elizabeth has experienced something similar to this. And so now Mary gets to go and celebrate this wonderful announcement with Elizabeth. And so hope isn't something that we isolate ourselves in, but it's something that we share and celebrate within community. And number four, Hope placed in Jesus demands a response of obedience. Verse 30, uh, 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. May we have a heart like Mary there. May we have such a response of Mary. When we read about this incredible hope that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which is the message and the point of this Christmas season, may our response be like Mary's. Behold, Lord, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Let Christ be the true Davidic king of my life, the true earthly king of my life. My earthly allegiance is to him. Let him be the heavenly king of my life, the eternal king of my life. Let him be the sovereign shepherd and pastor over my soul. Christ is ultimately our leader, our guide, our shepherd, our savior, our king, our Lord. And so that demands obedience as an accurate and appropriate response to this word. So where's our hope this Christmas season? May it be in Jesus Christ. Because Christmas is about hope and hope finds its deepest satisfaction and its surest fulfillment in Him. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank You for your word. I thank you for this season, this beautiful, wonderful season. This glorious message that came from Gabriel. This incredible time of year. And Lord, I hope, I hope and pray that we would celebrate all of the other good qualities of Christmas. Time with family and food and fun and beautiful lights. How we would celebrate and enjoy giving of ourselves to others in charity. Those are wonderful things. But most importantly, Lord, my, my prayer is that our hope would find satisfaction in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That we would look back on this pronouncement, on this, 
on this heralding of great news about this unique person, Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, the heir of the throne of earth and the heir of the throne of heaven. Come in one person and we would realize that our total allegiance is to Him. Our total obedience is to Him. Our total hope is in Him. That we would belong to His people. We would be a part of His kingdom. That we would rejoice in this wonderful fulfillment of prophecy. This wonderful fulfillment of hope that for so long was left empty. May Jesus Christ be the One who is strong, sure, and center at our lives this Christmas year. May our hope find our deepest satisfaction in Him this Christmas. Amen.